1: Welcome, everybody, to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. My name is Ben Smith. I'm joined with my two co-hosts, Curtis Wister and Abby Duty. The fall and summer to my spring. How are you guys doing today?
2: Good, how are good, you? Ben.
1: I'm, I'm good. I'm good. We had a really great episode last episode. So we talked to Marty yeah. Grohman, right? And we talked about the future of energy use in Maine, and actually, we're, we're pretty excited that uh, our, our kind of topic today kind of dovetails right into that conversation. And one of the things that we're, we're talking about in today's day and age, especially with our clients, we're having more and more conversations, especially when we talk financial planning and advisory work that we do with our clients about the, their values, right? And they want to incorporate their values in all aspects of their lives. And... With anybody, there are hot-button items that they want to be impacting wherever possible. Maybe it's climate. Maybe it's social inequality. Maybe it's disclosure of a company's business practices. Could be lots of different things. And, you know, obviously 2020 was a a really solid reminder of these issues to us, Mm -hmm. especially as we saw how COVID impacted the world. And there's lots of urgent calls to address racial injustice after the murder of George Floyd. So according to the report on U.S. Sustainable and Impact Investing Trends in 2020, and that, of course, tracked data as of year-end 2019, it found that lots of investors are considering ESG factors across $17 trillion of professional management assets. And that increased 42% since 2018. So a lot of the questions we're getting right now is, what is ESG? And how can someone tie their values to their investments? So that's the premise of today's show. Again, I, I think that really goes well with the whole energy, of course, the climate use the, uh, discussion that we had in last episode. Mm. But of course, because we are going to be referencing investments here a little bit today. And as you know, our podcast, we try to take a little bit more of the, the human side of, of the retirement discussion and ESG is, is part of this. We might be in uh, referencing investments and investment strategies. So we do have to read a little disclosure here for, you. So just bear with me as I do that. So registration as an investment advisor does not constitute endorsement of the firm by securities regulators, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. The tax and legal information contained in this podcast is general in nature. Always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. The information presented does not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk. There can be no assurance that any investment or strategy will be suitable or profitable for your portfolio. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss, and past performance may not be indicative of future results. Information presented is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities that are mentioned herein. So- Thank you all for kind of bearing with us in that disclosure. But I want to really introduce our guest today. We're really excited to have her. It's really a, a kind of a pleasure that we're all, all kind of be able to interview her today. She, uh, our next guest today is the head of Fundamental Equity Client Portfolio Management Team for Emerging Markets and International Equities in the Americas, and an Emerging Market Specialist at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, or GSAM. She leads the building of the emerging markets and international equities franchise. She drives business expansion, designs new portfolios, and communicates fundamental equity strategies to clients in the Americas. In her role as an emerging market specialist, she's focused on helping clients gain appropriate access to emerging markets, as well as assisting with their strategic asset allocation decision making process. She has 13 years of industry experience, joining Goldman Sachs in 2008. She graduated from Lehigh University, magna cum laude, with a BS in finance in 2008. She was awarded the Chartered Financial Analyst Designation, the CFA, in 2012. And at this point, I'd like to welcome Catherine Borlemay to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Welcome, Catherine.
0: Thank
3: you. Pleasure to be here.
1: Well... I, I'm really excited to talk to you. And first of all, um, you know, I know when we meet in person the next time, we'll do the secret uh, CFA handshake. Cause when you do that, you you know, the CFA charters have to do the secret handshake. We can't tell anybody. We're on a podcaster's quarter. We can't do it. So we'll do it next time. But, uh, but Catherine, um, I really, obviously, we want to dig into lots of things today, right? Is there's lots of things we want to get to. And I, I know when we've even had the conversation with our clients, like even mentioning ESG, they go, I don't even know what you're talking about these ESG <laughs> mm-hmm. letters so we want to dig into all that but of course with all of our podcasts we want to get to know you a little bit more so love for you to just start with where did you grow up and if you have any connections to me
3: of course so I grew up in Lansdale Pennsylvania so I'm sure you probably haven't heard of it it's a small town maybe 45 minutes north of Philadelphia. I don't have a family in Maine, but I've actually traveled to Maine many times. I can't claim myself to be a foodie, but my husband is. So I know that's a, a big claim uh, for me. And also, actually, I know Stephen King, I believe, the author. I think he's from Bangor, if, if, if that's right. Oh, and yes. my, husband's is a, so my husband's favorite um, movie is A Shawshank Tank Redemption. I know he's had some Stephen King books. So I know that's kind of like a fun fact I have about Maine.
1: So, right, so I, I got a time out right now on you, Catherine. You made The Cardinal's. <laughs> about talking about Maine (laughs) so so whenever you reference Bangor it's Bangor
3: Bangor,
1: yep. So you Bangor. always have to go hard G with, with the Mainers there. So all right. So now we got that out of the way. Well, thanks thanks for because again, foodies of course, Portland, uh, especially coast. There's lots mm-hmm. of great food to experience, and I, I can't blame you for making the the travel up to Maine to do that. Uh, but mm-hmm. I want to want to hear a little bit more about your the educational and professional career path towards working to Goldman Sachs. But then also, I I know you've been with Goldman. Goldman Sachs for uh, since 2008 so mm. then once you got into goldman like what, what was your career path like as a uh, as kind of migrating up to the emerging market specialist role
3: yeah so i'm i'm born and bred goldman so i uh, actually did an internship when i was at lehigh in, in college uh, back in 2007 then I graduated in 2008, as you mentioned, and I and I joined full time. And by the way, joining the asset management industry during the global financial crisis was for sure what uh, an experience, um, to <laughs> that... say the least. Learned a lot. Um, definitely, kind of saw a lot of changes over the last several years, but I, I came into a, a role within our finance department, worked with a lot of great people. I actually did internal mobility a couple years in to the asset management division, which is where I sit now. And I came in at a more junior level on our um, fundamental equity team, which is like bottom-up stock pickers. And within that team, I worked on the, we call it client portfolio management, which is the, the team of, of individuals that builds a lot of the communication. And we help drive kind of business growth for our franchise, and I specifically gravitated towards the non-U.S. equity part, and I just always found it so fascinating and interesting to learn about different countries and cultures and how maybe something so boring to us, like a grocery store, is completely innovative in Poland. You know, maybe they don't have that yet, and this is a great investment opportunity. Like, innovation for them, right, is not necessarily innovation for us. So that was just always very, very interesting and, and appealing to me. And I've really been in this same role for over 10 years now and and kind of grown up, grown up in in the role. And it's really been a a phenomenal place to work with. And I know everyone, like, this is such a cheesy thing to say, but people, and actually the first day I had a Goldman Sachs out of college, I remember we sat down during an orientation and the woman that sat next to me is one of my best friends today. And she was even a bridesmaid in in my wedding. So it's been great, great time for me, of course, professionally and, and also personally.
1: That's awesome. I know. I know you touched it a little bit there, but what do you love about your job on a day-to-day basis? What do you find fulfilling?
3: Yeah, definitely the constant just learning and growing. You know, no day is the same. Especially with the equity markets. I mean, as much as sometimes we want it to be, it will never be boring. <laughs> especially mm-hmm. inve- investing globally. So you're constantly growing. You're constantly being challenged, and I think that's that's a beautiful thing
1: and and I'll say too is especially um I think where my personal experience too going into working in the in the financial markets pre 2008 pre financial crisis is mm-hmm. you start getting you go through that you go is it always like this? Because this seems yeah. really pretty action packed yeah. on a daily basis. So exactly. I'm sure you kind of had a little echo of that after. After I was like, well, when's the next one coming up? Because it's been a, <laughs> it's been a few months. Uh, well, so, Catherine, I want to want to ask you again. Well, our our show today we're titling "Aligning Your Investment Dollars with Your Core Values Through mm-hmm. Investments." So I really want to kind of dig into kind of this theme here. And and really our our first question for you here is, when we're tying our values to our investments, it's really not a new thing, right? This isn't something that's just kind of come out in 2020. But it, it's a it's a concept that has obviously grown more popular, and it seems like it's growing pretty rapidly. And over the years, we've heard a few terms about this, right? Is uh, SRI, ESG. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've heard impact investing, socially responsible investing. Lots of different kind of ways yeah. that it's been called over the years. Can you help us define what these are and then what the acronyms mean and how they're different from each other? So maybe just kind of start with that.
3: Perfect. So first, let's start with SRI because that one's been around the longest. I'll spend the least amount of time here. So SRI, Socially Responsible Investing, this is very much an outdated term. And the term that's much more commonly used today in the industry is ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. So the goal of ESG is to invest capital with the consideration of all of the ESG factors with the goal of, one, outperforming a broad market index, and secondarily to align investors' values um, with with their capital. So zooming into that a little bit deeper. So first, if we pick on the E, so so think of environment. So with environment, we're we're asking ourselves things like, does this company use their resources efficiently and sustainably? Are they looking to lower their carbon footprint. So where I am today, I don't have a plastic bottle. I have an aluminum bottle. So that that would be brownie points for for okay. the E for that example. <laughs> for for the S, think social. Think that the betterment of society. Um, does this company have a diverse workforce by way of gender diversity, sexual orientation, etc.? Do they keep their employees? Do they retain their talent? Right. If they don't, maybe maybe that that signals something. Uh, to us, is it a safe environment? Is it an inclusive environment to work? And by the way, we can, we'll talk about this more, but diversity is useless if, if you don't have inclusion, which, which, which we'll come back on. And then the G, which stands for governance. Governance is just a fancy word for management. So good management is what we want to see. So is the management honest? Are they competent? Do they have a, a strategy for their business that feel, feels very sound? Are they trans? Are they compensated in ESG criteria? Incentives matter a lot, so that would be something we'd be very careful of. And what does the ownership structure look like? In some places in the world, like emerging markets, it might be owned by the government. There might be a family owned business, first generation, second generation, third generation. You know, All of those things come into play in terms of our overall assessment of, of the G. So that's the E, the S, the G. So another way we can kind of slice this is the flavors of ESG, because there's a lot of different ways you can achieve that. So one commonly uh, heard uh, method for this in the industry is alignment. So alignment, just think of you remove the bad stuff. Like we're just screening out all the the stuff we don't want. So the ESG offenders, if you will. Sometimes people call them sin stocks. So think of things like weapons, tobacco, gambling, fossil fuels, um, adult entertainment, etc., and that is, is can be subjective, by the way. Like alcohol, I get questions on that all the time. Some people have very strong views one, one way or the other of that. So those uh, may be subjective, but that's one way to just kind of remove the stuff you don't want. The second level often is called ESG integration. So that means that ESG is incorporated more holistically as a part of your investment process. So you might be doing those exclusions, but typically that means the investment is doing even more than that. So they're actively considering all of these ESG criteria as a part of the more traditional fundamental research. Likely they're engaging with those management teams, giving them real feedback on on how we'd like to see change on all of these ESG um, type of criteria. And then the third flavor impact you hear a lot. So Impact is, um, I almost think of this as like high-octane ESG, um, for, for lack of a better word. So maybe an easy way to distinguish the difference between the impact and the ESG. For ESG, I typically think of them, those strategies as more um, broad market exposure, so variety of sectors, and maybe geographies. You're still getting broad market access, and within those sectors and markets, you're, you're just finding the ESG leaders. But impact typically is more narrow. It's, it's more thematic. So there's typically one very precise goal. Maybe it's climate, maybe it's social. And the, the primary objective is really leaning hard into driving a significant change on that theme. So if it's climate, that is primarily the goal. We are owning businesses that are clearly solutions providers in the climate the fight on climate. And then likely there's going to be a high level of active engagement going on within that portfolio as well. So, again, so we talked about the SRI, we talked about ESG, we defined the letters, and we talked about the flavors within ESG, which is the aligned the integrated and the impact and maybe the last thing i'll just touch on is sustainability so i get questions like what's sustainability what's esg how are they different and in my opinion i I really view sustainability and esg is is really the same i think where where you want to get really precise is when you get into these like alignment integrated impact i think that's where we we need to do a little bit more defining to understand where we're actually you know putting our money to work
2: interesting Can you walk us through some of the reasons why someone would want to invest their long-term savings in some of these vehicles? Yeah. So I passionately
3: believe that incorporating ESG is an imperative uh, for investment success. So the first reason is if you just want to outperform any broad benchmark, ESG is one of many ways to help you achieve that. Secondly, the pandemic has just brought this more to the forefront and and finally investors very deeply care about this. So on this first idea of speeding your broad index, so I don't actually think ESG is only reserved for this small subset of investors that call themselves ESG. I actually think it's for all investors that as long as you want to be your benchmark, it should be something that that you're thinking about. And the reason I'm saying that is it's not just a trend, it's it's very much a, a revolution. We call it the sustainability revolution. It could have the magnitude of the industrial revolution coupled with the speed of the digital revolution. Um, This could very well be the most uh, tremendous investment opportunity of our generation. So I recognize that sounds maybe very dramatic or or overly bold, but but if if you take a step back and you think about it, I mean, the entire world is shifting. Governments all around the world have made commitments to going carbon neutral, the U.S., Europe, Japan, just to name a few. Corporates now, when you speak to them, this is really mandated as a part of their policy. And some of them are even really investing in a big way in terms of innovative solutions, really geared specifically toward ESG. And consumers, of course, care a lot more about it, especially the, the young, younger um, millennial generation. And from the investor perspective, what's quite interesting is the way you're, you're starting to, to see it take hold in the market and how you think about it from an investment so I think the way we see it is it really helps guide us to avoid a lot of these pockets of risk and also the, the areas of opportunities. So if I go through an example, the energy sectors is probably the easiest. So within the energy, the first part is we want to avoid the risks. So think about some of these oil companies that they're, they're not adapting. They're structurally challenged. And some of them might even have you know, governance issues. So we want to avoid that. That's going to help us from an investment perspective. On the other side, we want to identify the the good stuff, so the the opportunities. And there are innovative solutions. There are solutions providers today that are likely going to help us kind of come out and, and fight this battle on climate. So an example of one of those businesses is in Europe. They're one of the world leaders in terms of renewable fuel. And over the last 15 years, they've developed a technology that takes a bunch of different waste They mix that waste together and it creates something that looks like water, but it's actually a a fuel that reduces carbon by about 90%. Uh And that fuel is used in a variety of vehicles. So it's used in cars, it's used in trucks, which matters a lot in this high volume Mm e-commerce world we live in. And now they're even moving into airplanes. So in one year alone, this company has saved its customers 10 billion of carbon emissions. That's like taking three and a half million cars off the road every single year. So there's clearly a a important environmental benefit there. But then if you look on just the pure economic side, it's also very compelling. If you looked at uh, energy generation globally, about 3% is renewables, that's on track to go to 35% in the coming decades. And then if you just look at broad demand of renewables, something like one and a half billion tons every single year, but the actual supply that exists is very small. So if you can be a leader, a solutions provider, delivering a product to that, that's, that's clearly very compelling from the economic side, along with, with, the, with the, the E on the environment. So that's kind of this first idea of it's going to help us drive better performance. The second, the pandemic has changed everything. You know, it changed Perhaps. the way we work. We're doing this on Zoom right now, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. You, in person, I, I would have flown up to you. You know, <laughs> with with renewable fuel, by the way. In place. <laughs> so, um, it's it changed the way we live, but it's changed what we prioritize um, as well. And what you're seeing on corporates is, I guess, the term I like to use for this is it's like adapt or die. So if you're, you're leaning in and you're shifting your business model in a way that's more ESG friendly, we're finding more capital going to those businesses. We find investors want to partner with them more, and they're the, they're the ones that also are, are generating better stock returns. We, we want to invest on the right side of that. But for the businesses that are failing to shift their business models to this, if they haven't already done so, then that's, that's likely a struggle for them. So if you looked at actual stock returns, by the way, since the pandemic, what you've seen that's changed on the back of this is the dispersion of those returns is the widest we've seen since the global financial crisis. So if you're selective, and again, if you can kind of focus on ESG and identify the the winners and avoid the losers, it, it it can be quite interesting. And then the third and final point I mentioned is just investors care a lot about this. We no longer just hear our clients ask us to beat their benchmarks, but they're also asking us to align their values increasingly um, with with their investments. And you can see industry flows last year alone, more than $100 billion went into ESG-focused portfolios, as opposed to $400 billion outflows coming out of the non-ESG focus. And I think that's going to continue, especially as we continue to see ESG funds generally uh, structurally outperform the non-ESG funds. So again, just to summarize that, because I, because I said a lot, ESG does matter for investment success. One, because it's about beating our benchmarks. Two, the pandemic has accelerated this and three, investors deeply care about it.
1: Catherine, I heard your answer. I just want to phrase it in a way too, is because using your example of of the company that's that's creating basically a kind of more renewable energy source in Europe right mm-hmm. is and here's here's how we can reduce carbon emissions so say for example they need to go borrow money to expand their plant right and and so they would go again traditional um, you know equity markets uh, or these organizations that are that large they might issue a bond right so they would mm-hmm. go borrow money from the public and they would issue a bond and they would say here's what the interest rate is for a company of my risk right mm-hmm. so if but 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 some of this is also dictated by supply and demand. So if there's a lot of demand that says, hey, I want to support that company to borrow Mm -hmm. money from me or from the public to then go issue uh, or, or build new plants and expand their operations, they might get that at a cheaper interest rate right? Because more and more people are looking to buy that bond and support that company. So if they get that at cheaper interest rate, then that's less interest that they have to pay on their income statement. And that's more profitability they have. The profitability then translate to the equity investors, the ones that bought the stock of that company and it just kind of it feeds itself, right? As that whole it it just keeps on and so so when I I just wanna kind of rephrase what you're saying is when we say mm-hmm. beat our benchmarks, I think the premise what um we hear a lot of as our team is, hey, these companies that are are kind of in that loop. And those are being recognized by investors for uh, creating sustainable pra- uh, practices or having more diverse management or, you know, promoting more environmentally friendly uh, standards. The more they do that, the more investors promote that activity. But it's also putting pressure on companies that aren't promoting those activities because now there's a they're, they're getting forced to, hey, I'm now paying a higher interest for something that you know, that, that bond that I issued, I want to be like them and I want to get it cheaper. So if they do those other activities, so it almost kind of has this peer pressure back to high school type thing going (laughs) on of, I don't want to be the (laughs) non-fashionable one. So I got to get with the time. So I just, I I thought that would be just helpful just to maybe kind of add my little spin there to it. Exactly. Gotcha.
4: Catherine, can you help us understand how asset managers consider and evaluate ESG, right? So I guess what database and data points are used to understand characteristics like race and gender, and and really kind of everything there. And and if there are issues or challenges with that data, how is that then changing kind of how it's evaluated?
3: Yeah. There's many different data providers out there. Just to give you a couple examples, we have MSCI, Bloomberg, Sustainalytics. The first part with the data is it's it's flawed. Um, I think, but the second part is there are a lot of opportunities to kind of overcome that vis-a-vis we can use an experienced investment team and engagement especially. I guess the headline or the punchline to, to your answer is I think you need to, to get active to, to look beyond the data in, in order to drive real change. Mm. So first on the data piece. So the data has been exploding. We have so, so much more data today, which is really a great thing because what we can do today is nothing like what we could have done 10 years ago. So overall, I think that's a positive. But some of the challenges with the data is, first, it can be inconsistent mm-hmm. across the providers. So if you looked at a company and it has an ESG score, the correlation of that score for the same company across the various providers is only about 0.3 or 0.4. Mm-hmm. So one company might say it's an ESG leader and another is saying it's an ESG laggard. So it gets really hard for us to get comfortable with that. And you know, we talked about bonds earlier. If you looked at bonds and credit rating agencies... <laughs> If you know Moody's and Standard and Poor's, you know if they rate it triple B, they probably all rate it triple B. The correlation of that's mm. about 0. 0.9, so I have a little more confidence in that. Yeah. So that lo- low correlation just gives you a sense of just how it's inconsistent. So it's really hard to to, to depend on that. It's incomplete in many instances, especially the S, the social diversity, um, is really hard. If you looked at the Russell 1000, which is a broad market index for for large companies in the U.S. equity universe, only about um, thirty of those one thousand companies, so that's about four percent of them disclose any data on their workforce diversity. So by the yeah. way, of race, gender, like we don't even know it. So how can you make progress if you if you can't measure it True. in certain places like boards, like the boards of a company, actually, the data is pretty good. you know we can get a good sense of what the diversity looks like. but how can you measure inclusiveness? so, in Turkey, we've seen them make good progress of adding more women to boards, but half of those women are family members to the executives. And if you go to the board meeting, the women are, are serving coffee, they're handing out business cards, and that's where their role stops. Yeah. So that's clearly not the spirit. So as we said before, diversity is useless. If you don't have inclusiveness, that's really hard to, to get that information from the data. And I think the key solution um, on the back of that is is really experience and and uh, oh, sorry is engagement and I think having an experienced team on that engagement really helps. So just to give you some examples here of what we've seen, so there's a company in Brazil um, that we've we've invested with and that we've worked with, and one of the data providers actually flagged them as having five percent revenue exposure to predatory lending, which is like bad, abusive, inappropriate lending. Like, that's bad. Like, that's not a good thing. Well, well, it's not true. Um, so we, we flagged that to the bank, and we let them know that this was being, that this incorrectly was being flagged in the data provider. The bank actually went to the data provider. They, they cleared it up. The data provider kind of fixed the error, and the result of it was the company was upgraded on its ESG score from A to double A. So that's one way we can at least help with, with the data problem, mm-hmm. um, but also engagement where it really matters more is when you can give companies more direct feedback in terms of where you want to see their improvement. So we'll, we'll stick on Brazil, for our example. So there's another company in Brazil. It's a medical company. They make things like MRIs and ultrasounds, CAT scans, things like that. And they do pretty well um, in terms of ESG characteristics. They, like, for example, 60% of their workforce is is diverse. Most of their leadership is actually women, and they even have two um, diverse people on their board as well. Um, One area where we did see an opportunity for improvement with them was related to their executives and how they're paid, We felt it could be more impactful if they were paid based off of ESG metrics. So basically, you as the executive or the CEO, you get paid more at the end of the year if you're making positive strides on all these E and S characteristics. So, of course, we want to look at the bottom line, but those things, too, we think also are important. And we, we actually have an investor based in Brazil, who's Brazilian, and spoke with the CEO, gave them that feedback. And the ceo said to her no one's ever said that to me before no one's ever asked me for that before yeah. which i just thought was interesting um but at their next earnings call they, they talked about the fact that they are now going to start incorporating these esg they call them kpis k performance indicators um with within their compensation so i think that was that was something encouraging so i just gave you a couple of examples of, of where i think it really is helpful to engage, to drive that feedback. And with time, you can see a lot of improvement. And to drive more change, by the way, I think another way that's helpful is if you have a lot of scale. So as we are investors in that stock, right? If we are a, a equity owner, The more scale you have, like the more assets that you are voting on or engaging on, you might be able to have a louder voice in the industry, right? They might listen to you more. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another area, too, where if in the investor communities, you know, work and partner together, whether it's within one organization or other organizations, that's another way that you potentially drive more impact, more positive change going forward.
1: And Catherine, a a thread you're kind of putting on there is, is obviously not, not, again, I I appreciate that you have a lot of expertise here in emerging markets, but uh, also it's just going to be difficult because I'm sure from, you know, just from a data perspective, but from a country to country perspective on, you know, here's what their value system is as a, as a country with their culture, so mm. here's here's what they're willing to do and not willing to do, um, and you're kind of rewarding um, some of that with again kind of the, the capital part. So that's got to be really tough. But also, I um, I know from obviously from the data perspective, being in a, in its infancy here, is that look getting advocating for more data to come to you. That's more relevant, right. Is, mm-hmm. is making sure that no, we need these things to really evaluate you. And, and then I can really tell you those KPIs, whether they're improving or not improving. And that that might reward us more. So when you kind of make the point about a revolution, you know, mm-hmm. those are things that are going to have to happen, right. Is you're going to have to see more data adoption, better reporting capabilities from the companies, feedback loops yeah. of you as, as maybe not just you as Goldman Sachs, but us <laughs> yeah. as investors saying, Hey, we want to reward the companies that are doing good or doing well or doing good here. And we want to, we want to promote that. So I, I think those are really important points just to kind of tie those two things together. Cause I think that's the data thing is just so critical, especially in this day and age, because sometimes you know, we read something in the newspaper, we read an anecdote, right? It's like, oh, I read about this one company, a uh, reporter found this one thing out about them. And there's two sides of every story with mm-hmm. this. And and maybe that's the thing that all of a sudden, maybe the general public would think that they're a bad corporate citizen, And it might turn all the other data points away. So I think, I guess my larger point of this is (laughs) it's important to consider all the data that's available to us and um, and the things that you're doing in terms of the investment thing. So I really like that. I I, want to kind of go to about if I'm an investor, right? So I have my retirement money and I want to invest in... um, ESG, right?
4: Yeah. And
1: so, I, I guess I I want to then know, like, how can I how can I get confident here mm-hmm. that an ESG strategy is really aligning to to my personal values with my investments? So, I, I guess the that that's the question here is: while you're out there, you're you're kind of communicating to the companies themselves and working mm-hmm. on data and really trying to build this. Meanwhile, there's lots of companies out there building their own strategy. How how do these ESG strategies then report back to investors to making sure that they're actually, that those things are aligned? Exactly.
3: So I think at the very onset, the most basic thing to do as an investor is just evaluate the literature on the portfolio and speak with the manager just to learn basic things. Like what are they excluding if they're doing that alignment that we talked about? Like, are those, Send stocks aligned with what you also want to be excluded. And also, what is the objective of the portfolio? Is it narrowly focused on one goal like climate? Is it more broad focused? So ensuring just at the onset, what are they excluding? What are they including? What are the objectives? I think the second thing which is really helpful is ESG reporting. This is I think, evolving quite a bit in in our industry, in Europe, by the way, as all things ESG is very much at the helm of this. But ESG reporting is really just a snapshot of a portfolio or an investment, and it's looking at a variety of different ESG metrics. For that investment, and then it can compare it to a broad market index, like maybe the S&P 500. And then it could also compare it to a a broad peer group as well. Mm -hmm. So some of these, it'll be a variety of things. So some of the metrics could be on, you know, carbon intensity. So for that portfolio, what are the the carbon emissions? So I I know we have some portfolios where we'll, we'll say, okay, this portfolio reduced, you know, 90 million tons of carbon this year. And that's like taking 20 million cars off the road every year. You know, to make it make sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, those types of things, it could be what is the diversity look like for the board and for the workforce of all the companies that the portfolio is holding. Are there any fossil fuel exposure? Are there any exposure to any companies that have human rights violations? You know, the list goes on and on, but those are the types of things that can be very helpful for you as the investor. If you can review that report and kind of get a sense of what, what the portfolio is prioritizing, if that's aligned with you. And then the, the last but not least is also evaluate the the investment or the firm's stewardship and engagement efforts. So stewardship is, is when you own capital. So if you own equity capital in a business, you now can exert influence on that company. And the way you can do that is one that we'll call proxy voting, which is just voting on proposals. So say, for example, today John Smith is up for election on the board. Do you agree or do you not agree? Right. That's a proxy vote. We can vote that. And Mm -hmm. again, the more capital we have invested in that company, the louder voice we're going to have in that proposal. Mm -hmm. And then you don't just want to stop at the, I to go beyond the proxy voting. So maybe you can send letters, maybe you can actually engage and, and speak and give real feedback to the company. And many firms will do reporting on this. Um, and it will detail the history and specifics of the proxy voting, and it will give real qualitative examples of those engagements. So if we talked about that medical device company in Brazil, it it tells you that like in there, it goes through that example. What did we do? What did we tell the management? What was the result of that engagement? So those are things too, to also help guide investors and in terms of making sure that their capital is truly aligned in the way they want it to
2: be. So we've been talking a lot about ESG and how it it can seem like it's a very broad label, right. To address social Mm -hmm. climate or governance issues. (laughs) All at once. Um, So is it too broad to try to create long-lasting change in all of these areas?
3: I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I think it's in the eye of the beholder, in the eye of the investor. So for Mm -hmm. some investors, the broad is the solution, and for some, the narrow is the solution. So for those investors that just want broad market access across sectors, that's where that ESG, more traditional, makes sense. For other investors that are very passionate about a very specific thing maybe it's climate or maybe it's you know social that is going to be the the right path for them to take so another i guess parlay on that is so how do you figure that out so again we go back to the perspectives we go back to the literature we go back and talk to the manager and this is where a financial advisor is massively helpful by the way because they can guide you through this process you know very well better than i do um and what does you know what is the objective so Um, And then you can, so for example, there's an investment, maybe I really care a lot about climate, I really wanna focus in on climate. Um, So I wanna make sure the objective of that portfolio is to own the solutions provider driving the climate change. Um, And then often within the materials, and when you speak with the manager, you can understand very specific themes within that. So for example, within climate, I know we manage a portfolio, it goes through all the specific flavors of those themes. So we have one on uh, within that clean energy, Uh, One on resource efficiency, which is like think of like smart manufacturing, um, sustainable consumption. So like the stress, is it going to get recycled or what's going to happen to it? Same thing with food can actually be very, uh, that can be sustainable as well. The circular economy, that's like recycling type opportunities. And and finally, water sustainability. And then um, when you look at the, the investment, look at the holdings. And, and, and talk to the manager, talk to your financial advisor, what are those holdings, what are those businesses? Um, so to say on this example, give you some examples of some holdings in this portfolio. Um, one is, um, so we talked about the renewable, which is the clean energy. Another one we can talk about is the sustainable consumption. So like things we eat. So there's a European company that, it actually used to be a coal business really dirty and talk about the data being bad that is also backward looking so maybe if you look at data it doesn't look hugely compelling, but they completely transformed their business over the years and now they make innovative products for nutrition. So one of the things they create it's cow feed So like the cows will eat them and fun fact cows are often more harmful than up to our environment than even cars. Um, they release a lot of gas, which is methane, and methane's a more harmful gas to our environment than carbon. So by the cows um, ingesting this food, they're, you know, it improves their, their methane emissions. It brings them down by up to 30%. And if we um, use this product globally around the world, that would be like taking 700 million cars off the road every single year. Oh, wow. And then they make another product, which is kind of interesting. It's Another thing is omega-3s. So when I was pregnant last year, I remember my doctor was like, eat fish all the time, omega-3s. It helps with the baby's brain, you know, all that stuff. So you eat, I mean, salmon all the time. But that, in order to get that, you have to get it from fish, Um, so we're over fishing and there's not always more fish in the sea. Um, so what this product does is instead it's actually using an algae to get that omega three, which is so important for our nutrition and fish's nutrition as well. Um, that's a great way, a more sustainable way for us to get these really great omega threes that we want, but we don't have to maybe continue to do all the fish farming
4: so Catherine, we have uh several clients in the lgbtq plus and other minority communities as well how can they align their values with their investments and really understand if progress is actually being made in these areas
3: yeah so three ways to do that again from from the base you know we want to make sure we avoid the, the laggers we we own the leaders so the best way I can evidence this is just through examples. So I think we talked about maybe Europe and we've talked about Brazil. So if we'll pick on another country, let's pick on Japan. Um, so in the spirit of diversity and inclusion, Japan um, has not always been at the helm in terms of diversity and inclusion. Um, but to their credit, they have done a good job of making some improvements there. Now, fem- female labor participation in Japan is around 70%. That's actually even ahead of the U.S. and Europe. And they've done it the way we, they got there was they actually did a good job of improving their daycare capability, hmm. in case you're curious. But um, so we still have more progress to go, but that's one very notable area of, of progress. So when you go into Japan and we're thinking about diversity and inclusion, so some of the businesses we want to avoid, and then I can talk about what you want to own. So, what you want to avoid, so we, we met with this company there, um, they make consumer products. And one is like baby products and infant um, type of bottles. And we, our team met with them and there's women on our team. And across the table, there's not a diverse investment team. And they're telling us, as a bunch of gentlemen, and they're telling us about this product that's a baby bottle that so perfectly mimics breastfeeding. And it's like this perfect transition for the baby. And as a as a mother that's gone through that, it, I, it's hard for me to get a lot of confidence in that product when I don't see anyone there that has actually ever breastfed a baby <laughs> um, and sure. had that experience. So if we want to engineer a product that really is achieving that goal, then having an um, engineer, having a workforce that is reflective of that consumer base clearly adds a lot of value. So that would be something that we don't like. We want to give that feedback to the company, but that's not going to be something that would be included in the portfolio. On the opposite end, there are great businesses in Japan. One of them is a company. It's like they do HR type things. And where they've done a good job is on, they call it like a nursery school concierge. Hmm. So they help working parents. I help find nursery schools and daycares. Um, I live in New York. I'm in the process of trying to get my toddler into preschool, which by the way, is the hardest thing to do in (laughs) New York. I have no idea. It's like getting your eight, 15 month old in the Harvard, that's kind of what I feel like right now. Um, so if you have support at your work um, to kind of help guide you through that process in terms of holding your hand, saving time, that's huge to keeping mm-hmm. working, working parents in the workforce, just something mm-hmm. from my experience. So that's the first step, right? We wanna avoid the challenge ones. We, we wanna own the businesses that are doing the right thing by way of diversity and inclusion in terms of their own workforce. The second layer, which gets even better, is if you can identify the solutions providers tied into diversity and inclusion. There are some good solutions providers, even in places like emerging markets. Micro lending is a good example of that. So it's like really small loans. So they give loans of maybe only $50 to $200. So it's really small. But what these businesses do is they exclusively loan to lower income uh, women. And what's great about this, too, is they don't just blindly give out the capital, but they train them um, and they assign them a coach and they meet with that coach very frequently. And it's a group lending model. And it's really kind of interesting to kind of see, like, kind of hear the stories like there was one woman and uh, she had three children. She didn't work. Her husband worked. They, he made like dresses and, and saris and he actually hurt his index finger. So he basically couldn't work anymore. So she was able to get a loan. Um, was um, trained up on this, um, continued her husband's business. Now, today, the business is more successful than it was before, and she's employing other lower-income individuals within her community. Mm. So it's a beautiful effect in terms of the individual, in terms of their broader economy, but the business itself is is really attractive, and these businesses have a default rate of basically 0%. Wow.
2: Um,
3: And then last but not least, always engagement, where there's opportunity, give that feedback, and companies increasingly are willing Um, To incorporate those change and and that's what what we can do as asset management industry to continue to push that forward. And I know within our asset management division, um, we became one of the first managers in the world to vote against any company in the board um, without a woman. And then we're expanding that this year where we're going to do the same thing, but we're also going to vote against any companies that don't have a uh, person of diversity on the board outside of gender. So whether it's like sexual orientation, race, et cetera. Hmm.
1: So Catherine, it sounds like really from a strategy perspective, right? Is, hey, if I have this uh, p- particular passion of a, of a value or, uh, or something I really want to see change mm-hmm. or making a difference in is really trying to looking for that strategy. As you're saying, like there's lots of great stories out there of here's the impact. Impact really get to know the strategy a little bit, figure out where they're making their changes, in that, and then does that align to your values? Right, is essentially the the thought there. Uh, so I want to ask you a, a, a kind of another question here, is because it, again, it's always I think it's important that we're we're trying to see changes lots of different ways, but from a place where here's a asset managers out there that are. are are looking at uh, change and reflecting change and trying to lead change. How, how are asset managers themselves doing on ESG characteristics, including diversity inclusion? How, how, what, what's what's the state of that today?
3: Yeah. The asset management industry needs more diversity. Um, so we, we, we want to give that feedback to the corporates who are investing, but we also need to look at ourselves um, and ensure the investment teams are also practicing what they preach. If you look globally, about 14% of managers are women. If you look in the U.S., only about 11% are women, and that's on gender. If we look at other metrics, unfortunately, it's it's probably even worse. Um, So we need to make more progress. Uh, We don't just do this, by the way, because it's the right thing to do. We do it because it's a performance imperative. We do have data that shows us that once you get an investment team that's bringing diverse ideas to the table, we generate better financial results for our investors. What's also interesting, if you just have one person of diversity on the team, that doesn't really move the needle, so not enough. We need at least one-third of our team to be diverse. That's when we start seeing a more measurable impact. And we have data that once we get one-third of the team to be, you know, women, or diverse, we see the one-year average returns increase by about 3%. That's a pretty good number, especially if you can compound that. Over time, and we also find, as it relates to gender diversity, anyway, is, is the risk metrics look better. And I'm not saying women are, are smarter than men. You know, I, I like men. I have a son. I have a husband. I think they're really smart. Um, but but I think that there's different ideas that we can all bring to the table. And when you have diverse perspectives, that's that's really the key. In terms of the, the team I sit on, um, I'm really proud to say that uh, almost half. Of the you know 275 billion AUM, with when the public equity team here in, in Goldman Sachs Asset Management is is run by women, and by the way, run by women, like they're the leaders, they're not just the, the junior population. I think that's very inspiring as a female growing up um, in this industry. And sometimes I get asked, by the way, you know, how do you guys retain your talent, or you know, how do you have so many like women leadership? You know, what do the, the young junior people want for diversity? I don't think it's that complicated. I think you just want to look around you and see people like you, people of diversity and seats of influence and seats of authority. And that's just really inspiring. And I think once you get to this critical mass of diversity, you don't really have to talk about it anymore. And the Mm -hmm. diverse talent just kind of naturally comes to you. And and that's a really good place to be. Well,
1: I I, I would just say that really just real quick, uh, Catherine (laughs) is... You know, just going through the the CFA charter program itself, looking Mm. around the, the testing center, either in Boston or in Portland, Maine, is just saying, hey, being a female CFHR holder on a portfolio management team, I think speaks a lot to Goldman Sachs, right? is, yeah. is kind mm-hmm. of being there and because uh, again, it's just, it did not look like a very diverse group when I was testing at that time. So just kind of seeing that from where that's grown, I think that's pretty influential. I, I want to ask the kind of the next question though, is looking forward here, mm-hmm. as you said, I, I know what, what you're you're seeing your team do and, and where you're trying to grow and and how you're trying to kind of continue to, Build in diversity amongst your portfolio teams. How much farther do you think the the industry has to go here? Uh, because again, I, I know you gave some statistics there, but what, yeah. where do you where do you think it's going to go?
3: So where do I want it to go, or where do yeah. I think it's going to go? So I mean, I <laughs> yeah. think ideally you have an investment team that is reflective of the society. It's like as simple as that. Mm-hmm. So if gender is 50-50, ideally you'd be at 50-50. If the race breakdown is X, Y, Z, you know, I think I think that's kind of the goal. And the other goal is just that, as I said before, if you don't need to talk about it anymore because it's been solved, that's when you know you've hit critical mass. If people just feel safe, if they feel included, if they feel supported, and all of a sudden it doesn't have to be such a big focus, I, I think that's when you're starting to achieve some level of success. Um, I think it. I think we can get there, and I think it's really encouraging to see the progress. I think gender is kind of the first one to kind of go through. I, we obviously need to do a lot more on things like race, sexual orientation, et cetera. Um, but I do feel really excited, at least what I see and what I sit, and that you do see leadership very focused and committed on that. Um, so I think it takes time for these things, but but I do think we're moving in the right direction.
2: Nice. one. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about Maine. Um, so we are a rural population, rural state with an older population, right? And a lot of our larger employers that are headquartered in the state do have some socially responsible focuses, right? Yellow Bean, IDEX, WEX. What are some ways do you think that ESG invest- investing can impact lives in Maine?
3: So I think, first of all, for the people that work at those organizations, you can just have happier people, right? Mm-hmm. That That's important. Your everyday livelihood going to work every day. So if those businesses can incorporate that, people are happier. And by the way, happy people are more efficient people, mm-hmm. more productive people. So happier people equals healthier profits. So So that's the first part. And then also... Similar is at the economic benefit, too. I think as they incorporate that, as we've talked about before, we do very much believe that that drives better financial results, better financial performance over time. So obviously, if the businesses within their community continues to do well, then then that's a win for the overall society.
4: So we have one final question for you, Catherine. Um, We've made it to the end. So here we are on the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. One question that we love to ask all of our guests is what is your Personal definition of retirement success
3: um, retired on the beach sure but maybe in a uh, maybe another way to answer this in one word would just be flexibility right mm-hmm. flexibility to travel to see your grandchildren I, I think yeah flexibility that's
1: great nice well, well, Catherine, I, I got to say, we're, we're just really thrilled and uh, excited that you're able to come on our show today. And and I, I know for our audience out there and for the listeners that um, that tune into the show, again, like in, in our client base as well, we've just had a ton of questions about ESG and what it means and where it's going and how can I interact with it and just even what it is. So I, I think you did a fantastic job today, really breaking that down for everybody and and kind of also representing not only Goldman Sachs really well, but uh, but the industry. So thank you for for everything you're doing. It's it's really um, it's really a treat to have you on today.
3: Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to be here with you.
1: All right. Take care. Thanks. I thought Catherine did a really great job today. It was uh, again kind of running through ESG, what is it, but also kind of a the core values discussion. Kind of an interesting kind of way to approach. Not only just kind of retirement, but also investment. So as always, like to wrap up our show and get into a little bit of lessons or things that we take away from from the day. Maybe Curtis, you wanna just start us off with uh something you took away from Catherine's episode with us today.
4: Yeah. You know, I think something that, you know, we kept coming back to or that Catherine kept coming back to is, you know, how important it is to to really look into what you're investing in, you know, specifically with this ESG stuff. And you know, we talked about the data for a little while, and she she did a really good job laying out how, I don't want to say, I guess how inconsistent, I think is the word she used, the data can be, you know, and she brought up the example of, I think the country was Turkey, and they're being more inclusive in their boards, you know, on paper, and if you were to sit in, in a board meeting, you know, the the women aren't really doing anything in the board meetings, and so I, I think the, the global conversation, or kind of the point I want to get to is, it's really important to still do your due diligence with this stuff. And, you know, there are various ESG scores out there, but it's just, you know, with anything you're investing in, you really want to look into it. You want to know what you're investing in and, and, and be realistic in the, in the impact that you're going to have by investing in these ESG funds. You know, it's a step in the right direction or in a better direction, but it's not kind of an end all be all solution.
1: And and I'll add to that too, is um, you know, I remember back probably about a decade or so ago where you know social media was was beginning to be the next big thing. And looking into a social media ETF. Yeah. And you and you're like, okay, social media ETF, this is the thing we're gonna buy, and it's the next big thing. And you look at the holdings, and it was Microsoft was like 60% of the fund. Yeah. Because they had Bing, and Bing had a social media component to it. And then Google was like another twenty percent, and then it's like, well, I was thinking Facebook and <laughs> you know, and Twitter and yeah. you know, and and all you like Google with YouTube, and I was thinking that's what I was going to get, but I ended up getting basically a phantom Microsoft stock. <laughs> Again, which I'm not saying Microsoft is good or bad. It's just, but you know, it wasn't really the thought leader of what you thought social media was going to be when you were buying it. So, Curtis, what you're saying is, I think that's spot on. Is sometimes what you read on the label of some of these investments might not really actually be, or might maybe it's just a little bit different than what you thought it was going to be. So, really understanding strategy, what it's holding, why it's holding it, all that. I think Mm -hmm. that's that's actually how we got introduced to Catherine initially was, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, lo- doing due diligence on various funds and Goldman Sachs is, uh, you know, we do due diligence on their funds uh, for some of our clients. So that's the sort of thing of really understanding it. And I think that's what our clients pay us to do as their advisor is be on top of what's happening, in certain strategies, why are they buying what to do? What, what are sound strategies? What are not all that? So I think that's, that's really important. Abby from your end, what was, uh, what was something you took away from today?
2: Yeah, I thought it was, just a really helpful discussion um, because we often get asked as advisors kind of about ESG investing. It's a, a buzzword that people hear about a lot and they want to know is it appropriate to integrate that into their financial plan or how does that maybe fit into their financial plan or even what it is, just kind of some foundational explanations of what it is and what it, it entails. And so I think Catherine did a really great job of kind of explaining that and, you know, it may be appropriate for some people, it may not be, but having, at least having an understanding so that you can then have a conversation with your financial advisor about it, I think is really helpful. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I'll, I'll add too is, that it, um, you know, I think what, one of the things we wanted everybody to take away from today is, you know, obviously here's, here's some things to learn. And so that we're all using the same terms and definitions, but also I, I think the, the thing to impress in on is, as Catherine saying is, you know, she used the word, Revolution, uh, maybe it's it's a um, you know this is just a it's a pocket of the investment arena right now that's becoming bigger and bigger. I, so I think the point of this is it's it's growing and changing. Curtis, as you said about the data, the data is still in its infancy in different areas. Yeah. Um, also from, but don't discount here is a lot of the asset world's asset managers are in Europe and the United States. And here, the work that they have to do is go to each one of these countries and do not only just cultural translations, but language translations and figure out the data after translation. So it's a tremendously difficult job, right, is is really important there. The other part is, uh, you know. Obviously Goldman Sachs sells products like a lot of different investment companies out there, but what we're finding from an investment product side. And I know Abby, uh, when we get that question from clients and Curtis as well, when you, when you've kind of had those questions from clients is, well, what do we, what do we think at guidance point? What are we seeing? And I think mm-hmm. one of the things we're seeing knowledge just from a data and a trend that is also the products are evolving now. Mm-hmm. And I think the products are evolving more to the client needs and how we as advisors use and diversify for our clients. So I think you're seeing, and I, I know I don't I can't really get into a whole lot of more detail in terms mm-hmm. of products and really how they're evolving here, but I, I think I think that's what we're seeing here is we're we're seeing that they we can maybe use them to fit um into our clients' portfolios a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I think the the costs are coming down over time, which I think is also important. Uh and and I, I think third here is that I think it's really important that you're you're kind of seeing that the impact that these funds or these investments are making are getting reported back to us as the advisor. And then ultimately you as the investor is you're seeing like, okay, well, if I do, if I put X number of dollars in this fund, well, you know, Catherine pointed out, well, the carbon emission reduction is, hey, maybe that's taking one car off the road for 365 days. So it's almost like you driving your car, if you invested invested a certain way, might really counteract that carbon footprint. And I know some mm-hmm. of our, this whole mindset is get, being carbon neutral, is I want to not leave the world any worse off than what I started with. And, and maybe that's an effort that aligns people's philosophies to how they invest. In the, and that might be enough for people to feel good about uh, what they're making as an impact in the world. So uh, again, I, I, that that was really the premise of today's show was really get that philosophy, really explore it, really get a little definitional. I know it can get a little little heavy at times here. Uh, so appreciate everybody listening in. We will put a little bit more information on our website, of course, if you go to blog.guidancepointllc.com backslash. We're episode 47. We're we're in our late 40s at this point. But we really appreciate everybody tuning in. Again, ESG is kind of a fun thing to kind of dig through and learn a little bit about. But we always appreciate your listenership. If you have any feedback or want to drop us a line, we'd love to hear from you. But uh, until then, we'll catch you next time.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisor's mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45 minute listening session